Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Let's, uh, let's, we're going to dive in today and we're going to be looking at, at verses 7 through 13 today. Just a smaller chunk of scripture than we tried to bite off the past couple of weeks. Last two weeks, uh, Paul addressed the division that was going on in the church at Rome. They were experiencing some division over issues that he basically said were non-essential issues when it comes to non-essential to doctrine and to the gospel. He called them disputed matters, meaning these are matters that you can talk about and you can argue over and you can have your opinion on, but they're not matters of life and death. They're not matters of spiritual, uh, of gospel integrity. These are kind of preferential things that um, God loves people on both sides and believes that people on both sides are honestly trying to honor the Lord in what they do. These are issues that where both sides kind of have chapter and verse on. We talked about some of those uh, for the last couple of weeks. And I'll say this, that preaching through the, those, those non-essential issues and bringing to light some of those that we have today, that's garnered a whole lot more, uh, um, it's garnered a lot more like response and questions and discussion than a lot of the other stuff as we've gone through the book of Romans. So it's interesting to see how this was a problem going on 2,000 years ago in the church, but it's still something that kind of even though it doesn't manifest itself in the same way, we still have those disputed matters, those non-essential issues that if we're not careful and we don't put them in the proper place, they can really cause issues within the church and affect our gospel efficiency um, and our gospel witness and integrity. So, but if you've been here, you know what Paul was really getting at, the subject of unity in the church. He wasn't really trying to say, okay, let's talk about these issues. He's basically saying, let's get these issues in the proper place because we have something that is commanded of us and is clearly commanded, is not an option, and God has only got one thought about, and that is that the church should be in unity when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church should be in unity in their heart of love for him and their heart of love for other people. See, the Roman believers were commanded just as the Lexingtonian believers in 2020 that we're supposed to pursue unity in the body. And the Roman believers were divided over some things and it was hindering their unity, which was vital for their gospel impact. And at the time when Rome was the world's most influential city, it was the New York City or the, um, or the, or the Mexico City. It was the biggest populous, most populous place. It was kind of the melting pot experience for the whole world. And um, they were having trouble. The church that was called to be the salt and light in the most populous, most influential city in the ancient world at that time was having trouble being able to just kind of come together to, with one another to worship Jesus. Was, was it because they didn't agree on Jesus? No. They agreed on Jesus. They all loved Jesus. They trusted him completely for their salvation. They agreed in their faith that Jesus is the son of God and that he was the Messiah. If somebody stood up in the church service and quoted where Jesus said, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, just like we read just a moment ago, everyone in that church would stand and say amen. But if you started talking about being a meat eater, the vegans were ready to walk out. And if you started talking about being a teetotaler, those who enjoyed a glass of wine with dinner would be ready to shout you down. And at event planning meetings, they were constantly arguing over whether they should put the, ancient, uh, the, the Old Testament feast on the church calendar and whether they should celebrate that and whether it should be a church holiday. 
They were constantly arguing over those things. And they were starting to talk about, should we also open up a Saturday service so the Sabbath worshipers would also be happy and feel like they're worshiping God as well? You see, the Roman believers were not necessarily striving for unity. They were striving for what? They were striving for uniformity. Everybody looking and thinking and acting exactly the same way over every single issue. They'd done the same thing that we're prone to do, didn't they? They'd come to a place where they had spiritualized and they had doctrinalized things that Paul says should never rise to the level of doctrine or issues of moral righteousness. And what they had done was they began to spiritualize their stance and they began to demonize the stance of those who disagreed. That sounds like basically modern day social media, don't they? Doesn't it? And that division was harming the church's witness to the lost. And we see the same things happen all throughout, the, all throughout our churches today. And it, it's not something new today. It's something that's happened all the way through church history. This, by the way, is why we have so many sects and so many denominations and so many versions of denominations out there. Because along the way, groups of people began to disagree over one matter. And so they said, let's all go and start our own church based upon that or our own movement based upon that. And the problem was many times what they were basing it on was a third level issue, not the gospel. And when you build a group or when you build a mission and a movement on a third level issue, Jesus is not the reason that you've gathered. And so this is what was happening and this was what was about to happen in the Roman church. And Paul wrote saying, look, you've got to basically get down to what matters. And what matters is Jesus Christ who died for all to save all and the Holy Spirit that speaks to all. And so we left, we left off with verse 7 last Sunday where Paul closes out his argument for unity over uniformity in non-essentials. And he says this, and he says this, Therefore, welcome one another, or it may say receive one another, or accept one another. There's different, there's different kind of renderings of that Greek word, but it basically comes down to receive them unto yourself. It's an idea of open your heart to one another. Just as Jesus Christ also welcomed you or received you or accepted you to the glory of God. That's where Paul closed out his argument. Now, today, that is going to be the lead verse for a new argument for unity. This time, Paul's going to shift from a non-essential issues into an essential issue. Because not only were the Romans arguing over non-essential issues, there was a deeper essential issue that was at play. They were really not fighting over these issues so much as they were fighting over a deeper root. And it was an ethnic and racial and cultural divide in the church. You see, what was taking place is the Jewish believers and the Gentile Roman believers were not meshing when it came to the culture of worship. And so here's what Paul says in the remainder of our text. Therefore, in verse number seven, welcome one another... Just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised. And anytime you see that word circumcised in there, it's talking about the Jewish people in the New Testament. It's talking about the Jewish people, those who were still holding on to that Old Testament covenant and Old Testament law that God's people should go through circumcision. So Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. And also, in verse number 9, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. And I will sing praise to your name. And again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. In verse number 12 it says, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. 
Now, verse number 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that as you are the one who gives us power, you are the one who solidifies our hope. I pray this morning that you would speak to us today through your word. I pray that you would do your work of illuminating us to the truth. I pray that you would make our hearts and our minds moldable in your hand so that we may submit to the authority of your word and that you would speak to us loud and clear. I pray this morning that you would deliver salvation, that you would deliver hope, that you would deliver redemption, that you would deliver uh, security, that you would deliver whatever need there may be in this room or listening to this message, that you would be the one that provides it, God. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So, we see in verse number seven, it says, accept one another or welcome or open your heart to one another. Despite your differences, open your heart. Why? Because Christ has done the same thing to you. And if anyone had a reason to have a difference, doesn't a perfect God, a perfect son of God have a reason to have a difference with people who are absolutely not perfect? He said, so just as Jesus has welcomed you and opened your heart, opened his heart to you, differences as though he may have had, how about in my church, you all open your hearts to one another despite the differences that you may have. So just a quick check this morning. How many of you have ever told a lie? Anybody ever told a lie? Okay. See, what I, now you know I've just set you up, right? Okay, my hand was up as well. I'm sorry. Actually, both hands were up if you noticed that. Um, I just set you up, right? Because, you know, if you're in church and you're being asked if you've ever lied and you don't want to look bad by raising your hand, you know that people looking at you not raising your hand are looking at you bad because you didn't raise your hand because you're lying in church now, right? Because they know you lied and you're lying about lying. And you catch what I'm saying? See, what I just did was I set up a stumbling block, which is what the Bible said not to do in last week's message, right? I put you in a hard place where you probably couldn't win, right? No, we've all lied at some way, in some way, shape, or form. How many of us would say we've told some doozies? We've told some, we've told, well, we've told some white lies, right? How many of us uh, would say that you've been lied to way worse than you've lied to somebody else, though? See, this is our, our way of beginning to self-rationalize and make ourselves feel better about the things that we've done, right? We know that lying is kind of a part of life. It's not a part of our spiritual life. It's part of that old way of life as well. We've all told a lie or two, and if we're being really honest, we've probably told more than a lie or two as well, right? Matter of fact, we just come to accept sometimes within our culture that there are some things that we say that are just bold-faced lies and we've come to accept it, right? We, there's, there's little statements that we say just to people and we know that it sounds good, but we know that it's, it's not going to happen. It's just a false promise. It's a lie from the very beginning. You know, quotes or, or phrases like, the check is in the mail. Anybody ever heard that one before? Anybody ever told that one before, right? Um, I'll start my diet tomorrow. Anybody ever told that one before? Mm -hmm. uh, leave your number and the doctor will get right back to you. And then we, yeah, sure. Uh, leave us your resume and we'll keep it on file. Mm -hmm. uh, this is my favorite one from when I was a kid. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You ever, you ever heard that lie before, right? I've never told it myself. Um, open wide, this won't hurt a bit. This is why I got trust issues at the dentist, right? Um, I only need five minutes of your time. That's a lie, right? Uh, another lie that we often tell sounds great, but let's get together soon. Do lunch, right? Um, this, this is another one that you never hear here, but I hear it happens at other places when the preacher says, I'm going to wrap this sermon up real quick, <laughs> right? And the greatest lie of all, 
This has to be the one that we just know is not true, but we just let them keep on doing it. One size fits all. You know that that is an abject lie from the pits of hell. Anyone who's ever tried to put on a hospital gown know that there is nothing, there's no, no such thing as a one size fits all, even though it says it emblazoned across there, it's one size fits all. If you've ever felt a draft on your back in the hospital gown, you know that it's not one size fits all. Some people have that problem. I have that problem, right? And then what brings us to the most hurtful statement, the biggest lie of all is one size fits all, but the most hurtful statement is one size fits most, right? Because what it's basically saying is, if this doesn't fit you, you really shouldn't be on the planet, right? Because th this is what it's, it's saying. So, so the biggest lie of all is one size fits all. The most hurtful statement is one size fits most, right? And we know that the reality is there is really, I mean, can, can you honestly think of something that honestly is one size fits all? There's not many things, right? Not things that matter at least, right? Because we're all different. We know that we're different sizes, we're different shapes, we're different cultures. We're just different kind of people. We're in a diverse, this is a diverse place, world that we live in. God created us with diversity, with differences. Not one fingerprint is the same, man. And God created us this way. He celebrates our differences, but he did give us one thing that is one size fits all. And that is what we preach every single week. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one size fits all. When I tell you that Jesus loves everybody, when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is a one size fits all statement. That means anyone and everyone. People we like and people we don't like. People we think are redeemable and people we think should never have the chance to be redeemed at all. The gospel is one size fits all. Rich don't come to Jesus in a different way than poor do. Everyone has to go through Jesus Christ because he's the way, the truth, and life. In verse number seven, Paul transitions away from these non-essential matters, these matters that were tying up the church and debates and making the church like skeptical of one another, members skeptical of one another and was dividing them. Only this matter was very essential, this one that we're going to look at this morning. See, the Jewish believers in Rome were at odds with the Gentile believers and the Gentile believers were looking at the Jewish believers and they were just as much at odds with them. This was in their non-essential divisions, but those non-essential matters were stemming from a larger division. That the Jewish people, the Jewish believers had come from a culture that was based in a knowledge of God and traditions and laws that God had given to his people, while the Gentiles were coming from a tradition that was brand new. That all that they really knew of God was God's son, Jesus Christ. They may have known about what the Jews practiced, but they never practiced it themselves. And their cultures that they walked in were, never, were not the same either. They didn't grow up celebrating Passover because the government had set it up, set it up that way. They didn't grow up knowing the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments was a Jewish thing. And so when Jesus enters the picture and Paul begins his missionary journeys all around the world, whether it's Jewish or Gentile, and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaches a one-size-fits-all gospel that Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, male, female, it doesn't matter. Jesus died for everyone the same that was wonderful. It created a melting pot experience in the church, but what it did was it also created a clash of cultures. See, this wasn't just a, a, a Roman problem. They were divided over the question of who Jesus really came to save and what kind of kingdom the Messiah was really beginning to set up. Would the kingdom look like a Jewish kingdom or would it look like a Gentile kingdom? 
We know that the kingdom was going to look like something totally different. Jesus was creating a new kingdom, bringing people together into a new nation, a holy priesthood. But in Rome, they were fighting over what it was supposed to look like. And Paul writes here, right here in in the text, he's basically saying, look, the gospel of Christ is not a Jewish gospel. It's not a Gentile gospel. It's a whole humanity gospel. The gospel is one size fits all. And he says that the gospel unites us all in Christ. And he makes us a new nation in Christ. And he gives us all the same hope as we walk together in him. And over 2,000 years have passed. Paul's words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit still ring true today. Because we still have our cultural divides within church today. We still have our racial divides within church today. We have our traditional divides in church as well. And this is not necessarily a non-essential issue. This goes back to the fact that we think sometimes that our traditions make the gospel rather than the gospel being the centerpiece of who we are. So I want to look at three things that we see this morning. And as I say, I'm going to be quick. <laughs> All right, so lie right there. Okay, anyway, you've never known me to be quick. I can't even introduce myself in 10 minutes. All right, the gospel, number one, the gospel is one size fits all because it brings everyone close. The gospel is one size fits all because it brings everyone close. Think about this. The first aspect of the gospel being one size fits all is because it calls us all to the same things. It calls us to the same realization. And what realization is that? That we are all sinners in need of salvation. It calls us all to the very same thing. That we're sinners in need of a savior. And then it calls us to the same response after that realization. It calls us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. To admit that we're sinners and to admit that we are in need of a savior and put our faith in Christ. And it calls us to the same place. It calls us to the cross. To realize that the blood that was shed on the cross and the death that he died on that cross wipes away all of the sins and washes us away. There to my heart was the blood applied glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And it also calls us to the same person. Calls us to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the Great Shepherd. He has a lot of different names, but he's the same person. And he's the same savior to everyone. You see, the Jews didn't have to come to a Jewish savior. The Gentiles didn't have to come to a Gentile savior. They all came to a savior of the world, the Messiah. The gospel brings us all close. What's interesting is as we all approach the cross to find forgiveness and grace, we've all come close together. Look again at verse number seven. Therefore, welcome one another. Now, everyone read this next part with me in the yellow part. Just as Christ welcomed you to the glory of God. See, it brings us close first and foremost to God. See, one thing we're really good at, at as humans is we're good at choosing sides, aren't we? Last night over at Kroger Field, it'll always be Commonwealth Stadium to me, but whatever, over at Kroger Field, there were people who chose sides. They were wear, some were wearing red, some were wearing blue. The Red Hawks fans and the Kentucky fans. And the good guys won last night. That's great, right? But we're all prone to choose sides, don't we? We've been doing that ever since the dawn of time. Actually, we've been doing it ever since the dawn of sin, right? We've been choosing sides. Think about it. The very first sin that took place when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, what happened when God came to Adam and said, Adam, what did you do? What did he do? He lied and he chose sides. He said, the woman you gave me. He was willing to throw the, get this guys, he was willing to throw the only woman on the planet under the bus to save his skin. 
He chose sides. That's not a smart move. He's going to be a lonely dude for the rest of his life, right? But he was willing to do that. He chose sides. He's like, no, I'm not as bad as she is. She did it first, right? And that's exactly what we do, don't we? Again, we are so prone that other people's sin disgusts us more than our own. We choose sides. You know the Bible says that all sin has the same consequence because all sin is the same in the eyes of God. Yet what do we do? Well, my sin's not near as nasty as your sin. Right? We're good at choosing sides. When humanity pridefully decided that they would build a tower that was going to reach to God, what happened? God decided to diversify the languages. So what happened? All of a sudden, this guy that's over here saying, hey, I need a hammer... He's speaking in Spanish and the guy needing to give him the hammer is speaking Chinese and they don't understand each other. And what did the Bible say happened? They all basically found one another that they could understand and they went off and they, op- they went off into different parts of the world because they were skeptical of the ones that they could not understand and they started nations. And guess what happened after that? Nations began fighting nations because they were skeptical and they didn't trust. We're good at choosing sides, aren't we? You know what it all stems from? Stems from our sin. Stems from our sin. See, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't cheer for the Cardinals because they're sinning. I'm just teasing. All right, I'm going to leave that alone. The biggest difference and distance that sin created was the distance between us and God. The distance that was created at the Tower of Babel, the distance that was created, the distance that was created in the Garden of Eden was distance. But think about the greatest distance of all that sin created was between us and God. Jesus painted the picture of that, what Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Jesus painted a picture of that with a story he told of a rich man that ignored his whole life, ignored the poor and the needy. And there was specifically this one poor guy named Lazarus that sat outside the gate of his house that he ignored every day. And the rich man and Lazarus, they both died. And God God gave... the rich man, the ability to see into heaven or into, because uh, he was in hell and he was able to see into heaven and see Lazarus, the rich man, or the, the poor man that he had ignored his whole life sitting there with Abraham. And he was able to shout out into heaven saying, would you please just send a drop of water down to cool my tongue because I am just roasting in these flames. And what Abraham said gives us a picture of what Romans 3.23 says, how we've fallen short. He says, I can't send a drop of water down because there's this massive gulf, this massive canyon that is fixed between you and me. And it can't be crossed anymore. But Jesus could cross it. Jesus is the one who brings us close. And when he brings us close, he brings us to God. You see, sin has created nothing but division and choosing sides. But God, the one who should have been completely opposed to us in our sin, chose our side. He sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we who could never come to his side on our own could be brought in the perfection of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen, please. Because this is the gospel that we need to preach. But what humanity does is look for reasons and ways to reject. But Jesus made a way for us to cross that void. And then he said, while he was here on earth, come to me, all you who are tired, all you who are weary, all you who are broken in your sin, and find rest in me. He draws us close to God. See, we take sides and we go to battle with those that we're on the opposite side for. This is what we do. We look to reject while Jesus looks to accept. 
We take sides and we're very reluctant to let anyone into our camp. And so what that means is we know a whole lot more about rejection than we know about acceptance in this life, in this broken system of the world that we live in under sin. But I want to remind you, friend, and I want to remind you, you may be sitting here thinking, I've been, I've been, I've been rejected and I've been put away and I've been cast aside by every person, but there is one who will never cast you away, who is always calling out to you, say, come to me and find rest in me. And his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the one who draws us close. And when he draws us close to him, he draws us close to one another. There's the beautiful truth of the gospel. While all of humanity looks to reject you, all of heaven is looking to accept you. The Bible tells us that all of heaven rejoices together when just one sinner repents of their sins and is saved under the blood of Jesus Christ. All of heaven throws a party when one person around this world gets saved. Jesus accepts the rejected. He brings us close to him by salvation. That's the one-size-fits-all message of the gospel, but he also brings us close to each other. A wonderful thing happens when we all approach Jesus. We all approach one another as well. When we're all coming to the same place to find redemption, we see just how many people there are that need him just as much, and we see that we're all alike, no matter how rich, poor, black, white, American, non-American we may be. We're all the same in the eyes of God. We need him. So the gospel is one size fits all because it brings us close to each other. Look again at verse number seven. Therefore, what? Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. And if we, see, we serve a savior that welcomes us so openly, what should we do? We should welcome openly those who Jesus welcomes as well. When we all come close to the cross, we find that there is a beautiful mishmash of people and we find out our differences really aren't as important as what has drawn and who has drawn us together. See, the gospel is one size fits all because it draws us close. The second reason the gospel is one size fits all is because it crosses all, all cultures, every culture. It crosses all racial divides. See, when people get together from different walks of life, cultures begin to clash, don't they? You ever notice that? See, in our American context gives us a really unique understanding of this truth because in history class, I remember my history teachers always standing up and saying that America was a social experiment. Did anybody ever hear that in history class? That the United States is a social experiment. And they said that America is really what you would call a cultural melting pot. Meaning, we are not one culture. We are a blending of a bunch of different cultures. Of, 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 of European cultures. And even in Europe, in Europe, you have all these different cultures as well of Italian and Spanish. And, and then you throw in South American with Latin cultures and African cultures and cultures from all over the world. And they all come to America and we have this big melting pot, right? And what's that supposed to do? We're all supposed to blend together and make this new experience called the American experience. But have we seen that happen all the time? Sometimes that melting pot boils up and spills over and creates chaos, doesn't it? So I was studying for this message, and um, I was kind of going back and thinking through history. You see, instead of having that melting pot in New York City back in the 20s and 30s, what they ended up having was gangs would, would, would stem up. Italian and, 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 and Irish gangs would go to war with each other, and because they were coming in saying, no, I'm going to be Irish in a new land, or I'm going to be Italian in a new land. I'm not going to accept the fact that we're Americans together. And I was a studying for this message. The author, one of the commentaries I consult with, talked about remembering when he was a boy growing up in the South in the 1960s. 
They hear it as a little boy walking into church one day, and there were deacons standing out on the front stoop of, his, of, of the church, welcomed him in, but they had guns on their hips, and they weren't there to welcome people in. They were there to keep the black people out. And he said, even as a little boy, I thought that was, that was weird, and I thought that was something, something different. Look, I don't have to go back and rehash all of the different problems that we have in this melting pot that we live in. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel is that true melting pot experience. So we still see the effects of this racial divide, these cultural divides today because, because social experts say that Sunday is still the most segregated day in America of the week because it's the day that people go to church and we go to church based upon a lot of times our cultural similarities rather than the fact that we've been brought to Christ together. And it's not a new thing because this was the issue in Rome as well. The Jewish believers were much more comfortable worshiping with Jewish believers because they had that history that bonded them. The Gentile believers were much more comfortable worshiping with Gentile believers because they were from that same culture as well. But Jesus said, I'm the savior of all and I'm preparing a new kingdom that is not defined by nations and flags. I'm preparing a new kingdom that is defined by repentance and submission to the king that is not under a flag. He's under the banner of Christ. See, this is important to understand because Paul knows that the same gospel of Christ addresses both cultures from different purposes. See, look at, look at verse number 8 and 9, okay? Paul's going to point out that the gospel addresses and, cross, and, and crosses over all cultures. In verse number 8, it says, I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises of the fathers so that and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Now, we don't usually think of conjunctions in our language being really big, but that word and right there in our passage is huge. It's a cross-cultural conjunction right there because he's saying that when Jesus died on the cross, the Jews, for the Jews, he was fulfilling a promise that had been made through the covenant. And for the Gentiles, it was so they could be redeemed and so they could glorify Christ and be brought in to the covenant as well. You see, it was a cross-cultural conjunction right there. He died for two reasons. He died to save us. He died to fulfill the promises made to the Jews. And he died to allow for the Gentiles to be able to glorify God as well. For the Jews, the gospel of salvation not only provided eternal life, but it was a fulfillment of a promise that they've been waiting centuries for. And for the Gentiles, who were on the outside looking in throughout the whole Old Testament, they were now on the inside looking up to Jesus. But that same gospel accomplished both things. So what was happening was that the Jewish believers were finally coming around to accept that Jesus also died for the Gentiles. And they were doing that in a lot of places. They were doing that tongue-in-cheek. Not just in Rome, but in Corinth and in Galatia and all other places. There was this group of people called the Judaizers that had come to say, okay, that's fine. Jesus saved you, but if you truly want to be accepted into what a Christian really looks like, you've got to get circumcised. I don't know why we keep bringing that up. But you've got to also start doing all these feasts and you've got to start following all these Jewish laws because they thought, and here's what they thought, that Christianity was just an extension of Judaism. But what Paul is saying here is Jesus fulfilled the covenant and is beginning a new nation where we are all together as one. The problem was that these were all part and parcel of a specific covenant of God. All of those things that they were, that they were arguing over and the Jews were saying, look, you've got you to do this and you've got to do that. And you, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to look like a Jew. 
And, G- and, and, and Paul was saying, no, Jesus didn't save them so they could become non-ethnic Jews. Jesus saved them so they could become the sons and the daughters of God. So Paul starts quoting from Old Testament to remind the Jewish people that this had already been foretold all the way back in the day. See, Romans 15 verses 9 through 11 are actually quotes from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written in Psalms and Deuteronomy, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. That's the witnessing phase. That's the fact that God intends for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And in verse 10 it says in Deuteronomy, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. That's the phase where the Gentiles are to be brought in and to, to rejoice together. And then in verse number 11, and again in Psalms, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples praise him. That's the phase of God is creating a new kingdom, a new nation. Jews and Gentiles alike, united not by blood, not by oaths, not by traditions, but united by Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. So here we see Paul note the stages of how God intends for the gospel to be cross-cultural. And one thing that the Jewish people were struggling with was this idea that Jesus came to make Judaism better. But Jesus did not, as he said, he didn't come to to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it and to complete it. And the law's work was done in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5 verse 12. And this is another quote from the book of Isaiah. It says, The root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will hope in him. That root of Jesse there is a, is a, is a reference of Jesus, the Messiah. He says, The one who the Jews already know will rule and reign over God's eternal kingdom. He's risen to also rule over the Gentiles. And the Gentiles have found a new hope in that Jewish Messiah. What he's saying is, Jesus is rising to rule not just over the Jewish people but over the Gentiles as well. Over black, white, red, yellow. They're all precious in his sight. And see today I say this and I say this, is not, this one is not a preferential, non-essential thing. This is a doctrine of the gospel of Christ because you cannot truly trust in a savior or, or, or following a savior that only loves certain people one way and loves another person another way. That's not a one-size-fits-all Savior. Jesus dies, has died for everyone. All that will believe may come. The culture of heaven is the culture that we see in Revelation when John says that he was given a glimpse of the throne of God where people from every nation and tribe and every tongue were gathered around clothed in white robes of redemption singing praise to the Father. It doesn't say whether they're singing in their home language. I think it's a new language of heaven. And they sing glory to the lamb that was slain. To receive honor and glory forever and ever. See, this is the true melting pot experience. Jesus invites us in together. And he crosses all cultures and creates something new. See, I think, I believe that the church should be a glimpse of what heaven's going to look like. I think that the church should be multicultural, multi-generational, multi-everything that we come together and we worship Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Are there different expressions depending on where you live? Yes, there's different expressions. I got to tell you, I, the, the chances I've had to worship in other countries where I was in the Philippines, man, it, it's different the way they do it. The feel is different. The language is different. But the gospel is the same and the spirit is the same that unites us together. 
There's different expressions, but listen, especially in our nation, we have a unique opportunity to see that revelation picture in the church today. But what does the rest of the, what are we busy in the rest of our world and our culture doing? Dividing over every difference we can think of. When the gospel is one size fits all to unite us together. Lastly, that melting pot experience leads us to this uh, last aspect of the one size fits all gospel is that the gospel gives everyone hope. The gospel will give everyone hope. Look at the last verse, of thir- last verse in our text, number 13. Now, after all he says here, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's wrapping up this discourse on unity in the church and how does he tear down the walls of division in the church? How does he do it? With the hope of the gospel. He says, put your eyes on Jesus, put your faith in Jesus and be filled with hope. A lot of times what we do when we divide What do we do? We divide and then we demonize and we become skeptical and we villainize people on the other side, which makes us fearful and paranoid. And then what happens? We lose hope. Because it all becomes a contest. Who's going to win? This side or this side? This side and this side? Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter what side wins here on earth because the final chapter's already been written and we know who wins all of it. And we've already been promised that if we're with him, we're the victors. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe. (laughs) Here's a one-size-fits problem that we all have. We all need hope. That's a one-size-fits-all problem. Doesn't matter if you are in the tippy-top tax bracket that you can possibly get in. You need hope. Doesn't matter if you are on skid row and in the worst financial condition you can think of. You're in the same place. You need hope. And you can't find hope, the hope that you desperately need, you can't find it anywhere else but Jesus. Here's another one size, so we have a one size fits all problem, we need hope. One size fits all solution that we've all been offered, Jesus is your only hope. Remember that text that we read out of John? No one comes to the Father but by me. That means you're going to come to Jesus, you're going to come out of every tax bracket, You're going to come out of every country. You're going to come out of every political party. You're going to come out of every persuasion to the same place, to Jesus Christ. (laughs) Did you catch in our text how we're supposed to respond to that great hope? That great solution, that hope in Jesus, how do we respond to it? And how does it grow in us? It comes to us as we believe in him. As we let go of all the other things that we think are helping us and cast all our cares, all our hope, all everything, letting it, if you're a betting person, letting it all ride on Jesus Christ. As we do that, that's where the hope comes. That's when we find hope. When we let go of everything else, every other anchor, every other thing that we think is our, our firm foundation. And we say, there is no other foundation. It is on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's when hope begins to really take root. I love what Paul already told us in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and 13. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? And here's what he says. For with the mouth, confession is made. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. 
sorry, results in righteousness, and one that confesses with the mouth, it will result in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. It doesn't say, uh, if the Jews believe on him this way, they won't be put to shame. And if the, Jews, if the Gentiles believe on him this way, they won't be. Everyone who believes on him. And since there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Everyone. Everyone who receives the gift of salvation and walks with Jesus has the same future and has the same hope. No matter what direction you come to Jesus from, he will then take you in the direction you need to go with him. And it will be in the same direction to his glory and our good. That word hope presents a cultural conflict to us though. See, we hear hope over here in our broken world and what we mean by hope is it may happen. Like, I hope Kentucky goes to the SEC championship in football this year. It may happen. But when I say I hope in Jesus, that means it will happen and it's just as sure as if it already has. Remember what my father-in-law used to say so many times. I'm just as sure for heaven today as if I'd already been there a million years. In Jesus, that's our hope. If it's in Jesus, it's just as sure as though it's already happened. So my question for us, church, is why do we spend so much time worrying and stressing over all the stuff around here and choosing up sides and doing all that when we're told as the church we need to have the hope of Jesus and we need to have the eyes of Jesus and we need to share that with everyone. Just like verse number seven says, as Jesus has accepted you, go out and accept others. So as we wrapped up today, I want to give two points of applications from this message for the church. How do I apply this today to, the, to, to my life, my role in the church? How do I apply it to my life? As the body of Christ, just turn the volume down a little bit, that's fine. As the body of Christ, we have to reflect the accepting heart of Jesus. We have to reflect the accepting heart of Jesus. Are we doing that? See, Paul was encouraging the church at Rome to be a church with an open door. In a culture that was more built on dividing over differences, the church still needs to be a place that welcomes and accepts all in Christ. Understand, too, that accepting doesn't mean affirming everything. Accepting means I accept you and see your need for Christ. Acceptance is not affirmation. We'll talk about that at another time. But as the body of Christ, we need to be welcoming to all and not become roadblocks to Jesus. But as the body of Christ, we also need to share the hope of Christ with others. And church, I want to ask an honest question, make an honest assessment. Are we doing that? When was the last time you talked to somebody about your faith? When was the last time you had a gospel conversation? When was the last time you came into church and said, hey, I got to put a white ping pong ball in the who's your one board out there because I invited somebody to church today or put an orange one in because I had a gospel conversation. That's our role. That's our goal. That's what this text should lead us to. That I need to be intentionally welcoming and open my heart to all. And here's a question for you. If you are struggling with your salvation, you don't know for sure if you're safe. Do you have that same hope in Christ? Have you put your faith in him to have that hope? And the question is, are you willing to accept that? He's already accepted you on the cross. But you must accept him to have that eternal life. Are you having trouble with belief? Are you saying lately, man, I've just been struggling. 
I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But whew, man, this seems like God's allowing me to live as much hell on earth as I possibly can. Are you struggling with your hope? Here's what the Bible says. The more you put your faith in him, the more hope you'll find. So maybe you need to come and just let go of some stuff. Maybe you need to come and trust Christ. Maybe whatever it may be. Let's do business with him today. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll have your will and way in this time of invitation and move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. At Grace Way, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.